series Bridging the Gaps, jointly produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline, In this episode, we'll be exploring the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and of our general economic context in which lockdown is occurring on young people. We'll be hearing from two people in their mid-twenties and also from a 16-year-old. One of our interviewees for this episode, Tommy Hickey, is a law graduate based in the Dublin area. He had found some work in a cafe before the latest lockdown, but the cafe has had to close, and so he's now unemployed again. Our other adult interviewee, Jonathan Laszlo, is based in Brussels. A social researcher by training, Jonathan took a slightly circuitous career route through several jobs and now works in policy for a large healthcare company. And we're also hearing from 16-year-old Amber Wilmot, who is interested in medicine and space and who is an A-level student in Cornwall in the UK. I was joined by EHFF coordinator David Somek for the interviews. We'll start with Jonathan Laszlo. So what would you say are the most difficult challenges you're facing when dealing with the lockdowns and the virus? So I moved to Brussels about a year ago with no real connections here or no real support. I also have a partner back in the UK And I think probably the toughest thing in recent months have been the quarantines, really. I mean, the restrictions within the city itself have been one thing. But I think restricting freedom of movement between countries means that I can't currently see my partner because it would mean two weeks of quarantine in one direction, two weeks in the other directions. I mean, before we were seeing each other on a weekend, right, between between working and you're not going to come and do four weeks of lockdown to go and see someone for two days or even for two weeks. That's been really difficult. Obviously, trying to get settled in a new country as well and it should be a period where you're out there making friends building those connections things that I was excited for being in a new city and being in a new place and have a fresh start has put a bit of a stopper on that I do have some good friends here but I can see one of them or two of them I think <laughs> at the moment also I live in a in a big shared house currently think with seven other people so how we move around with each other these housemates I mean some of them have become my friends I would say but a lot of them just people that I ended up living with because they were also in the same situation that I was so I think now more than ever you know people are looking how to be a respectful housemate how to negotiate each other how to take responsible decisions for everybody else in the house as well because you're not just thinking about yourself when you're taking actions or to think about everybody else who's through no choice of their own or your own is now in like a bubble with you which is like it's a weirdly intimate concept isn't it and I think you know the fact that it can happen with strangers now almost is odd the idea of a household bubble kind of makes sense when you think about it from like a traditional or like nuclear family perspective but this isn't the situation for so many people in the world you know not just young people but everybody people are in strange living situations all over the place when I thought 12 months ago okay I'm going to move into this big house might be a bit crazy could be quite fun might be who might I meet etc etc will it be okay are there going to be fights in the kitchen over fridge space I don't know like how many passive aggressive notes will I see I mean these are the things I was thinking about 12 months ago and now 
it's not those things it's how are they living their lives what do we do when we're all here together how do we be kind to each other can we bring other people into this space is that fair oh, yeah. and then uh, the only other really quick thing that i wanted to mention is like what governments could have done differently and i think particularly around kind of like lockdown policies and the rules that they're introducing. One of the things I hear, or the only time I ever hear like people saying that they want to break the rules is because they feel like the rules don't make sense, like they're arbitrary. It doesn't make sense to have five people in a pub or a bar, for example. What, like, why can't they just then come around for dinner or something? And maybe it's just because I'm a researcher, but I'm always concerned with like methodology. I think it would help if governments were actually communicating what factors they're taking into account when they take these decisions and not slogans like in the UK they have protect the NHS and you're like okay but like what does that mean people aren't as stupid as governments seem to think they are they can handle levels of complexity and if you don't fill in those gaps yourself and if you don't control that narrative like even if you say look we have imperfect information but within that imperfect information this is the reason why we've taken the path that we've chosen these are the things we're balancing these are the people's perspectives and opinions these are the populations we're trying to protect. We thought about how these things might impact across different levels of society and not just politicians and their children. So it's not necessarily the policies themselves, it's the communication behind them. I asked Jonathan what he thought the particular effects of the virus on his generation were. In some ways, it maybe has produced a bit of like a stagnation or a stasis. I mean, I'm thinking now about people coming out of university, for example, expecting to get jobs. Look at the devastating impact of COVID on the economy, you know, breaking into the job market at that period or even coming straight from school. They're going to be apprenticeships that will lead into careers. I mean, those sorts of things tend to fall off the wayside. So all of the sort of societal structures that are supposed to lead you through those changes or lead you from one step to another. I mean, a lot of that framework is, has just been obliterated by the financial impact of COVID. So sure, people are growing and developing as people or I hope people are growing and developing as people but in terms of those like way markers or milestones or all the things that people might feel pressure to feel like they're doing at 18 at 19 at 20 that might have been blocked or that might have been stopped or or it might have redoubled the pressure around it I mean it either requires some rethinking on a societal perspective about where it plays so much importance on certain placeholders. Mm. Do they make sense anymore? Do they map onto society as it is? But it, then it might also lead people to think about if we are going to put that sort of importance behind those things, you know, how can we support people to help that happen? I think if we're still going to be thinking in these terms of you by 24, you should be, you should be moving out and on the career ladder. Like, <laughs> yeah. If you're going to have that as a societal expectation, you need to make that accessible and possible for people to come to. And a lot of that is maybe tied in with this boomeranging culture that a lot of for my age have had to be you know leaving somewhere and coming back I know that's quite a fraught thing to happen for people it feels laced with a lot of a sense of failure with it I mean I know personally I found it really hard to move back home after graduation for example because I was like gone left home had my independent I've worked all through university as well not just studying and then to come back after that 
and like reflect and restage. I mean, I still felt really lucky that I had an environment to return to, which is not the case for everybody, but it's horrible. I didn't want to be back home. Like, I didn't want to be back, you know, in the town that I grew up in after having lived everywhere else. And um, I think there's there's going to be more of that for people who are maybe moving into that world now. I mean, maybe uh, maybe my timing in the end was fortunate and that I'm, well, hopefully, I mean, you never know what can happen, but coming out the other side of that period of real upheaval and real transition. But if you're in it right now, Wow, I mean... (laughs) You mentioned it would be good for society generally to reflect about these sort of milestones, some of which are probably a bit arbitrary, you know, about what you're supposed to do at certain times. You also mentioned the sense of shame, which seems, you know, really unfair. I mean, misplaced. It seems like it's economic dynamics that are making people have to do these painful things, like move back home when they don't want to and so on. I mean, you say it's economic dynamics and, you know, I think you're absolutely right. But when it's your life, you're not thinking about economic dynamics. I think there's one thing, there's genuine policies that need to be put in place, tracks out of school, reimagining of education that builds on people's strengths you know and not just some like set curricula that only seems to favor or value certain certain ideals I mean genuine subsidized route into the job market doing away with the idea of experience to get experience because the only people that can give you experience for free are already privileged and and wealthy ridiculous concepts to intern for an internship which you see sort of um popping up and unpaid internships for example at my perspective have no place in society unpaid labor is unpaid labor and you don't want to go down that route but then I think more importantly, there's there's a narrative shift because actually, if you look at the way society is set up, we're living in, in a society that foregrounds the individual, the foregrounds individual responsibility, the foregrounds success stories. People will always point to the exception and say, well, this person dragged themselves out of poverty or this person battled discrimination throughout there and did these amazing things. And yeah, of course, you know, there are amazing people doing amazing things all over the place. But actually the system as it is, is not necessarily set up to help everybody succeed. And I think, you know, when I mentioned shame, you called it misplaced, but actually that is the way that we're trained to think about ourselves you know why aren't I the person that's able to do that why can't I see other people doing things on social media other people doing things on on LinkedIn I see people having amazing careers I see politicians saying basically an extended pull your bootstraps up narrative without recognizing the foundations that most people's success is built on so the flip side of that is that when you're not progressing in the way that you think you should be you don't think oh, I'm a cog in a machine. Do you think, oh shit, like I'm, <laughs> I'm messing up here, you know, like I'm not, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not clever enough. We were supposed to be the generation, you know, who doesn't necessarily join a company, work for 25 years, stay in one place, that kind of thing. And don't get me wrong, like I'm well aware that having that level of choice or that level of movement is a massive privilege and it's still not afforded to a lot of people in, in my generation. But it was supposed to be like the positive side of the deal where we also deal with more precariousness, less job security, less working security, less financial security. There aren't many people my age who will have like fixed addresses, fixed jobs for, for a long period of time and they might move around. And the benefit of that was supposed to be that we can have that sense of excitement of like go and work in this country or in this country or I could you know go and work for this company or I could do something completely different. Or I can have a, a mid-year career switch without it being too much of, of an issue. And having that element of choice was supposed to be the benefit of that precarious 
situation that I think a lot of people my age find themselves with. It stripped away that infrastructure. It stripped away a lot of that choice. And the trouble is that if you take that choice away, which was supposed to be the good end of the deal, you're left with only the precariousness. Yeah. And it's a bit of a raw deal, to be honest, I think. Now, I think it always was. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who would trade some choice for more security. That was Jonathan Laszlo, who is working in healthcare policy in the Brussels area. Now we're going to hear from Tommy Hickey, who is based in the Dublin area and has a background in law. I asked Tommy what have been the most difficult challenges for him in the past few months. So just to give you a bit of context, I'm a 25-year-old. Coronavirus is starting. I was traveling across Southern Europe with a friend and I came back in March. The biggest challenge for me has obviously been employment. I was blessed that I became an adult when the last recession was finished and done in Ireland. So all through college, I always had a part-time job. If I didn't like that part-time job, I could give it up and I could have another one. So I've never really gone longer than maybe two, three weeks without a job before until coronavirus, until all the cafes shut, all the service work is gone. And I have a law degree. I was trying to get more kind of career progression work, but I just haven't gotten anything back. And you can see in Indeed when you apply for jobs, maybe 2,000, 3,000 people are applying. And so I think for me and maybe for my age group in general, employment has been the ultimate challenge. And then other ones that kind of lead on from that of just the idleness of not being in work and kind of boredom and to another extent loneliness from not seeing people. I think it's interesting. I think before coronavirus, for my generation, there was a huge challenge to find dignified work. I think the service work, this, the cafe kind of industry is obviously always there. That's growing. 70% of the jobs in Ireland are in that kind of bracket. And also, aside from that, it seems like it's only really the financial industries and then kind of Mickey Mouse jobs like recruitment that are growing. So I think my generation was finding it very hard to find dignified, worthwhile work anyway before coronavirus. And now I think post-coronavirus, that's going to get even more difficult. The traditional professions are kind of shutting shop, a lot of them. I know journalism is in an awful place. In terms of law as well, a lot of it seems like to be more difficult. The kind of typical middle-class professions are getting less and less. And I think to find dignified work post-coronavirus is going to be very, very difficult. Yeah, so it's all employment related. The thing for me, it kind of makes it different for most of my peer group. The virus itself doesn't actually scare us. Do you know what I mean? Um, I know a lot of people that have had it with asymptomatic. So it's quite unlikely that a virus will affect anyone really, my age, most people. I know it can, but no one's really taken that threat seriously. So we're dealing with boredom. But I'd imagine for other people that have been isolated, with young kids or any type of carers who are genuinely worried about the virus or maybe living with someone who's vulnerable. I think it's a lot more difficult for them, to be honest. I would also feel very sorry for people maybe more middle-aged who probably might not work again because of this. Do you know what I mean? Who might become long-term unemployed. Like maybe people in their 20s, we can afford to reinvent ourselves. We can study another course. But I would imagine that there's maybe a lot of people kind of falling out of the mainstream society at the moment through having not worked for so long. Uh, slightly older people, and I guess it's been very difficult for them. And also just um, my granny's just got out of hospital. She came home there yesterday. But for anyone that's in the healthcare system, it's been solitary confinement for seven months. So that's that's hardship that I couldn't fathom either. I know my little sister, I have a little 13-year-old sister. She's in school. Her life's not that much different. Do you know what I mean? The schools have done a good job of staying open. The sports are still open now during this level five lockdowns we have she's able to play her sports obviously there's not as much like crack happening on the weekend for her but she doesn't seem to be that affected yeah i feel very sorry for people starting college because i had a great time in my first few years in college and went to galway and had a great social life and discovered the world at the moment though it must be very difficult though if you were waiting to get to college and find a new social group and now there's just no socializing at all feel for them yeah i have two grandchildren both to uni for the first time this year and they're experiencing exactly that they're incredibly frustrated Mm. you know feeling they're being cheated somehow 
Mm. It's really important to them. Yeah, that, that kind of segues into one of the other questions, which was what sort of things do you think could help that the government or powerful bodies could do? Well, firstly, I think that the lockdown shouldn't have applied to the whole population. In, in my opinion, the focus should have been on vulnerable groups and whatever you can do to protect them. But I know just for non-vulnerable groups, the threat of the virus, as opposed to the threat of long-term unemployment, for me, doesn't compare. I think there should have been more uh, focus on protecting vulnerable people who are more likely to have serious health consequences. I also think that the airports should have been closed, especially in an island nation like Ireland. Cases were very low in March. It would have been very easy. We're, the, we're one of the richest countries in the world and we're in Ireland. Sorry to be very Irish-centric here, but for me, there was no real excuse for keeping the airports open and letting tourists come. And especially here, there was no obligation for tourists to self-isolate when they came here. It was just advised that mm. they do. So we had, at the height of the American second wave, we had people, could be flights coming in from Texas. So I think that it was pretty easy to do a flat lockdown and it was pretty easy to do what the rest of the world was doing. But I think the more intelligent things would have been to actually stop people coming in and then focus on tests and tracing. Proper tests and tracing like they've done in South Korea, like they've done in Hong Kong, these hugely populated places who have dealt with the virus much better than us, they've put the money into tests and tracing and they've gone after whatever they think has the virus. So I think a more nuanced approach and more practical approach, I guess, would have helped people a lot more. We're living in the technological revolution, I think, and automation is always going to lead to less jobs. And that's why I think the argument for universal basic income has been growing a lot of momentum recently as well, because it's becoming more and more obvious now that the market economy is just not going to provide full employment anymore. Now it has been, but it, people have been predicting that it won't be able to. And I think with coronavirus, a lot of unnecessary industries are going to shrink or go extinct. So yeah, it's kind of that process of automation and people losing jobs to robots. That's just going to be accelerated now. I think calls for universal basic income are going to grow because societies might not be able to function. Have you ever read George Orwell's kind of collection of essays? Like I think it's called The Lion and the Unicorn. Long time ago, yeah. Yeah, in one of them he's kind of writing about World War II at the start of World War II. And he said it kind of became obvious to him and to educated people in England at the start of World War II that without a strong planned economy, if the government couldn't override the private interests of business, that England was going to lose the war. You know, Hitler had complete control over the German economy. He made it a military economy from the very start. But I can't remember the examples, but George Orwell said at the start of World War II, there was all types of profiteering and racketeering going on and hoarding and all types of big businesses working against the national interest. And I think eventually the British government did and did kind of nationalize or make a war economy and did defeat Germany. I think coronavirus has driven home that same point, that private interests, a kind of a market-based economy, market-based political system is ill-equipped to deal with coronavirus, to deal with existential threats like this. And I think we've seen it, the strongest planned economy in the world, which is China, they're going to overtake America very soon. Whereas nearly the whole Western world, which is dominated by a kind of neoliberal philosophy, economies are all falling behind because private interests were allowed to override the interests of the general public. So I think in some way, coronavirus is pushing us all towards stronger states. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I saw a headline which I wish I had looked at more actually, but it was about how the richest people in the world have got way, way richer mm. since coronavirus. Yeah. There's a huge flow of wealth and it's going in a particular oh. way, you know, in a particular direction yeah. at the moment. So I think that it's almost an argument for socialism that to solve these kind of collective existential issues, and it applies to the, to the climate crisis as well, because private business interests can't be left to themselves. Who would have ever thought that Donald Trump would somewhat nationalise nearly the whole American economy at one stage in March. Do you know what I mean? But they, he had to, because he had to tell them to make the PPE. He had to direct businesses to do to serve the public interest. So I think the, the trend for the last 20 years in the West has been the smaller states, neoliberal governments, private initiatives. But I think this has kind of almost been the rebirth of the state, of the power of the state and the necessity of a state to solve these problems for us.
what would be the most unexpected thing has happened as a result of the virus for you? One little unexpected thing, more in March, it doesn't really apply at the moment, but I thought it was very interesting how there was a lack of personal protective equipment. I think, yeah, most European countries had that problem and we saw America redirecting flights and whatnot. I think for all of us in these modern consumer societies where we have millions and millions of products at our fingertips, it was quite a shock to me and to a lot of people to see that something as quite as simple as a face mask or hand sanitizer, there was huge shortages of and they became coveted products. I think it showed the precarious nature of the global supply chain and how this world we're living in is completely interconnected and dependent on each other and that how extremely wealthy nations are by no means as insulated from crisis as we all might think we are. Another one on a more personal level was just the amount of time I've had and what to do with it. So I went from school to college and then worked all types of odd jobs. I've never had this much time and it's been a huge time of saying, what do I actually like? Who actually am I? What am I going to read? What do I want to read? What do I want to do? So I've never had this, this excuse of time before. And I guess, I don't know, looking so much at myself, that's been the biggest shock. I guess I'm at an age too, though, where I'm leaving kind of a lot of youth things behind. I'm trying to forge a new manhood identity, I guess. But the amount of time I've had, that's been the biggest shock to me. And what to do with it. Boy, it's been the total opposite for me. I don't know how it's been for David, but that's... Uh... That's it, yeah. <laughs> the one thing I probably should have mentioned earlier when I said the biggest challenge, like for people my age group is the idleness and the unemployment, is that I think there's a whole load of drunkenness and drug abuse mm-hmm. and addiction that my generation was bad for anyway, that I think has accelerated now. And I think people that might've been on the fringes of having a problem, a lot of people do have problems now. And I've seen that because there's just no structure and they're on their own. So I think alcoholism and drug abuse is probably going to be more prevalent in society because it is to be expected, I guess. I think there's often a stress and strangely not being stimulated enough can be stressful as well. I think if you're under a certain amount of pressure or stress, then you're more likely to have that kind of addictive uh, tendencies. Well, I just comment with my special interest of mine. Um, I'm an an ex-doctor, so and I've been studying the health system for many years for me, is in the, at the time of the troubles, it was, uh, it was something that people observed that in fact the incidence of, uh, of mental health problems actually went down, retrospective studies, because uh, people were too worried about staying alive. You know, they didn't have time to be, <laughs> to be depressed or whatever. You know, because it was a really terrible, you know, the tensions in the North. Here, here it's very different, isn't it? Because you're not dodging bombs. And sure, there's corona on the horizon, but as Tommy said, for a lot of people, it's not such an existential threat. And I think there's more space, really, to... Uh, to explore your dark side you know in those kind of circumstances for people to suffer and we know mental health problems have been major haven't they and a lot of it's to do with loneliness and that, and that sort of thing i do believe it's almost a modern phenomenon kind of the mental health crisis isn't it i can't remember where i read it but apparently things like anxiety a lot of not much people would have identified having anxiety in the 50s or and things like this whereas it's quite common now with younger and younger and even people younger than myself teenagers nowadays and stuff as well so you'd worry for that. That was Tommy Hickey speaking to us from Dublin. Our final interviewee was 16-year-old Amber Wilmot speaking to us from the UK. What would be the biggest surprises in the last few months for you, the most unexpected changes? Um, probably my GCSEs getting cancelled. Yeah. yeah. That's really a big milestone, I guess. What have they done to stand up to that? Or have they done anything? Um, just preparing us for like A-level mocks. So um, just making it aware to everyone how important mock exams are because that's what our grades, our predictions were based 
first on. And I suppose the first time round was the first lockdown. You, you can't have had any warning. I mean, you you know, you couldn't have known. That. No. Are you studying a lot online now or do you go into school some? How yeah, um, I go into college every day, so I don't have any lessons online. Okay, so you're still seeing other people in real life. Yeah. Does everybody have to wear a mask? Yeah, around corridors and on buses, but not in classrooms. Are you spaced out more than you were physically? or? Well, they try to space us out, but we're always meeting up with other people in between lessons and breaks. So it's... Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say is the hardest thing you've had to deal with for the last few months? Maybe only being able to meet up with six people and the rules kind of constantly changing. It must be hard to keep track, I imagine. Yeah. Can I ask you, sport was a very important part of your school activities last year. Yeah. Has the COVID thing affected your ability to play hockey? Yeah, so I can train at college, but we're not allowed to play matches because of other teams. It's the competitive stuff, isn't it? Meeting another team. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me, what about, I know that your generation anyway is always online or, you know, using social media and so on. Has that changed at all during the COVID thing for you? I feel like a lot of people are on social media more often now and adverts popping up on social media about coronavirus and it's mainly based on that. It's like the main focus of social media. You think there's a lot of fake news now that you noticed? I don't know. You don't know if it's fake or not? No. (laughs) Is there a lot of information just floating around about the virus or is it more that it's something that your friends and you would talk about a lot on social media? Yeah, yeah, we talk about it a lot. What do you think is the biggest worry that you guys have then? about this because you're not particularly in danger of dying from it. Yeah. No, but I mean, there still must be worries about this circumstance as well, Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is still a chance that it could affect us quite badly, but just like school life, really, and that getting really disrupted. I mean, mine's already been pretty disrupted with my exams being cancelled. But for the future, like, we don't know how long this is going to go on for and it could affect me during my A-level exams as well. Mm -hmm. What other aspects of your life feel different now? Well, I travel quite a bit between my mum and my dad and going to public places like train stations is, is very different as well because of social distancing and everyone wearing masks and like one-way systems it's yeah that's pretty disrupting and going to the shops and things like that is, is that very different where you live or yeah, yeah it is i don't know how much kids are 16 these days think about the future i mean whether <laughs> you, it's affected the, what you think i mean obviously as you say you're concentrating on what matters like your a levels and getting into uni but i mean family life and so on I mean, do you think it will affect if it carries on for ages, it'll affect other things? Yeah, I mean, personally, I don't really think a lot into the future, focusing on now, but I feel like it could affect family life. 
traveling between families and seeing family that don't live nearby. It's about resilience, isn't it? I mean, you have much more resilience, I think, when you're young. You know, you just take things as they come. You just say, oh, well, that's, life's coming at you, you know. <laughs> I don't know how it is for you, Amber. My daughter, who's 12, says that in some ways it's an adventure for her dealing with all of this. It's pretty cool to be able to, in the future, talk to a younger generation about living in this time and all the uncertainty. (laughs) (laughs) We've been hearing from Jonathan Laszlo, Amber Wilmot and Tommy Hickey on the effects that lockdown has had on their lives. While young people are having to change their lives drastically because of the pandemic, they aren't responsible for its root causes. Research indicates that many pandemics, including possibly this one, are triggered or exacerbated by decades of overdevelopment and the loss of biodiversity, as industrial development encroaches on natural areas and damages their ecosystems. In our next podcast, we'll be exploring the links between biodiversity and health. Please tune in again at the end of November. And in the meantime, if you like our podcasts, please help spread the word by sharing them on social media. Many thanks to Jonathan Laszlo, Amber Wilmot and Tommy Hickey for participating in this month's podcast. Thanks to David Somek for acting as co-interviewer and thanks as ever to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Music